God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course, he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show, and I'm joined by Leonor Cavoda. Hello, Leonor. Yeah. Hello, Scott. Well, happy to be here. All right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm happy to be here, too. Um, So we, uh, yeah, Donald Trump lost his ex-wife. That's what I was distracted about. And I'm going to read his uh, post uh, that he put out. Ivana. Ivana. Not to be confused with Ivanka. Ivanka. So this is Ivana. This is the first wife. This is the mother of Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. And she was 73 years old. She was from the Czech Republic. She uh, immigrated to the United States many years ago as a competitive skier. And she was also a model. And she and Donald Trump met in 1976. And I believe they married in 1977. And, and, you know, everybody heard about their famous divorce. But Donald Trump always remained very respectful of the mother of his first three children. And I'm going to read what he wrote upon learning of her death. I am very saddened to inform all of those that loved her, of which there are many, that Ivana Trump has passed away at her home in New York City. She was a wonderful, beautiful, and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life. Her pride and joy were her three children, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. She was so proud of them, as we were also proud of her. Rest in peace, Ivana. It's beautiful. Yes. Uh, you know, um, the first thing that ran through my head, and well, maybe not the first thing. I mean, my first thing that ran through my head was, "Wow, that sucks." I, I, it's sad that she died. Um, but the uh, you know, was she vaccinated? I, I I mean, there's there seems to be a lot of we. I played a clip earlier in the week. I think it was um, of of all these strange deaths. And seventy three. Is pretty young. Well, my guess she, was she was a uh, she was obviously very fit uh, and healthy in her younger yeah, life. Yeah, um, she was a uh, like a, a ski racer. You know, she was a competitive skier. Yeah, and um, and so when you take a look at the uh, that you know you just was she vaccinated? Was this uh, myocarditis related? I mean the uh, 
the uh, it was a heart attack of sorts. Yeah, I think she was climbing a set of stairs. She was found. She was found at the. I at mean, the again, there's, the stairs. they're still releasing yeah. information. She was found at the bottom of the sheer stairs. But I, I, I do think. I mean, you know, at this point, speculating about whether she was vaccinated or not. How important, you know, how I'm not sure how useful that is, but she was over 70 years old and she lived in New York City where you couldn't do anything. You know, you were so restricted. There was tremendous pressure to be vaccinated, particularly if you were of a certain age. So my and she was also even though they were no longer married, she traveled in high profile circles where she probably wouldn't have been allowed to go anywhere without being vaccinated because you have to remember in New York. Um, months ago, uh, to get into events and things, you had to show proof of vaccination. Well, and even Donald Trump is a big get vaccinated enthusiast, which is something I don't really agree with, but... I think he I think he had a healthy skepticism about everything, but he was also the president of the United States. He had to err on uh, ca- on the side of caution. He had to be vaccinated. So here in a Daily Mail says Ivana Trump died after falling down a staircase of New York City townhouse just hours before missing her regular hair appointment. Hours before. OK, so devastated. Eric Trump is spotted leaving. OK, so Eric and Lara, you know, were um, photographed and videotaped, you know, leaving the uh, premises there. She was 73, um, died after being found unresponsive in her Manhattan townhouse. She was preparing for a St. Tropez getaway and had a hair salon appointment for Thursday afternoon. Uh, and she missed it, you know, missed that appointment. Um, police performing a wellness check found her at the bottom of the stairs. Oh, so that's how they, that's how they discovered her. Yeah. She had a hair appointment and they were like, whoa. She's not. She's not here. And she never misses a hair appointment. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. And again, the other thing is something could have happened that she could have fallen on the stairs, or she could have had. You know, the the onset of the heart attack could well, have caused the fall. You know, and they. Uh, it says authorities suspected cardiac arrest or fatal fall. You know, it could be an aneurysm. It too. could have been an aneurysm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we don't know yet. Um, it's been a very sad day. And uh, that's what Eric Trump said. It's been a very sad day. Of course, losing your mother is never easy. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, yeah so. Um, daughter Ivanka also paid tribute to her mother in an emotional Instagram post. Former President Donald Trump was the first to share news of his ex-wife's death on this truth on his two social network that's what i've already read i know (laughs) i know i was here i was here (laughs) were you and yeah (laughs) and he paid tribute to her as a wonderful beautiful and amazing woman so rest in peace ivana Ivana trump Trump. uh and uh now we were faced with the politics of the day yes and um uh, joe biden who promised that he wouldn't shake anybody's hand Uh uh-huh like he wouldn't shake Netanyahu's hands, he's not going to shake yeah. Solomon's hands, he's not going to shake. But he'll shake Abbas. Yeah. Abbas looked at him like, "You're my gravy train. You are here to give me money so I can, you know, buy more prostitutes." I mean, this Palestinian authority uh, yeah. leader, yeah. Um, Abbas, is a murderer, murdering thug. And the liberals out there uh, are are saying that 
Netanyahu, for example, and I forget the uh, leader, the, the current prime minister of yeah. Israel. Handsome guy, though. He's got a great jawline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, Netanyahu was also there. And um, I remember uh, responding to this tweet this morning. And uh, it was basically, uh, it doesn't appear that he shook the, the bloodstained hands of Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Because Netanyahu is conservative. I'm like, yeah, but he would shake the bloodstained hands of Abbas. Yeah. So he went over there and he said he's not going to shake anybody's hands. Yeah. Meanwhile, all week prior, he was shaking all kinds of hands. And he was going to cite it off as like COVID. Like, people have used COVID for more excuses than I could ever shake a stick at. Yeah. But, you know, you have to figure, um, so why does he make that statement and then flat out just lie and shake yeah. the hands of every tyrannical terrorist sympathizing funder? Um, you know, and I, I get sick and tired also of hearing about Jamal Khashoggi. Every single time they bring up the meeting with Solomon, they bring up this, this, this dude, this guy, Jamal Khashoggi, is nothing but a globalist terrorist. Mm-hmm. This guy is so bad. Yeah. If you look in his background and see who he associates with, the guy is a total scumbag. Mm-hmm. Jamal Khashoggi is total scum. And everybody in America that, that's uh, anti-Solomon... Uh, uh, Pro-Iran, you know, it's typically a liberal thing. I just can't get over it. How this one death, I mean, nobody nobody cared about uh, Foley when he was beheaded. Nobody cared about um, all of those journalists that were beheaded. But all of a sudden, Jamal Khashoggi gets all this sympathy. That's because he's a poster child for a certain ethnicity, and that's what happens. No, it's not just that. It's... That he's connected with Al Weed bin Talal yeah. and Bill Gates, and I got them on videotape uh, doing businesses together, uh, doing business together. He was the secretary of Al Weed bin Talal. The guy is a total terrorist sympathizer. They were financing terrorism and over uh, to to overthrow governments and to work on the black market with weapons distribution channels and all kinds of things. Um, They were on the wrong side of history. You know, when Trump came in, he ignored the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, because they were basically, uh, all they wanted was money, and American politicians would just give them money because it was was just the thing to do. But um, it was the Palestinian Authority... Uh, that controlled uh, Hamas in Lebanon. And it was the Iranians and the mullahs that controlled Hezbollah in Lebanon. And together they would blow the crap out of Israel. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows it. And the two entities in the Middle East that are front and center right now with this Biden... um, uh, visit in the Middle East is that he wants to get back into the JCPOA and his comment in an interview was he's waiting on waiting to see what the JCPOA or wait, wait, waiting to see what Iran's response is going to be and he does that ahead of the meeting where he's going to go hat in hand and ask OPEC and Saudi Arabia to 
produce more oil when Solomon could look him right in the eye and say, well, you produce more oil, Jack. Yeah. I mean, why don't you produce more oil? Why did you shut down Keystone? Why did you um, not renew those leases in Texas and in the Gulf and in Alaska? Why did you do all that? You know, don't don't come to us and ask us or, or tell us and push us around when we have a strategy of our own of what we want to do with our our, our oil. And so I hope that uh, Solomon, you know, basically uh, tells him, hey, drill more in your own country and maybe he'll get the memo. Maybe Biden will wake up. The good news is, though, that um, it's now looking very likely that the Republicans are now favored to win the Senate. Yeah. So... You know, we need we need to stop whatever the Biden administration's trying to do. And uh because Biden doesn't even know what he's doing, but it's all the radical left in DC. Um Brookings, Brookings institution comes to mind. Well he's continuing to have a gaffe moment and what they're doing is they're keeping Joe Biden here through the midterm elections and then there there is no way he's gonna be able to run in twenty twenty four. There is no way. They're gonna they're gonna pull him. They're gonna come no, up with some it's reason. Be Gavin Newsom. Yeah, I know. I'm seeing the. I'm, I'm hearing more and more about the possibility of a Gavin Newsom, uh, Ron DeSantis matchup, and I think that could be, you know, a very exciting campaign. I mean, you could be. I mean, there's there's a lot they could do with it. You know, you're talking about two uh, candidates from warm weather states running. It, it could be. Uh, it could be. Well, interesting. one of the one of the problems for Trump is, despite the bad polls, like uh, it was 94 percent of people that were 20 to 30 year old Democrats mm-hmm. said they want new leadership yeah. in their Democrat party. But when you ask the same people, um, these same Democrats, would they vote for Biden over Trump? And of course, you know, it was, uh, it, Trump energizes the de- the left, yeah. energizes the Democrat base because Trump doesn't kowtow to uh, a political correctness, right? Yeah. But, um, but neither does DeSantis, really. We, we, we have a little bit of a clip. It's a real short clip. We're going to play that in a second. There's a fun meme here. It says, um, fake artist, Hunter Biden. Fake president, Joe Biden. Fake doctor, Joe Biden. They're all fake. They're just a bunch of fakes. And here is DeSantis. So we're going to go ahead and play this real quick. Like, can we actually agree that women get pregnant and not men? Because, because they don't seem to say that. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, some of the stuff that you're hearing about that. Love it, right? But did you ever think we would have this conversation? This is the, this is the chapter and verse. This is the level of intellect that the left is on. They can't even figure it out whether or not you know, they can't even figure out, you know, the meaning of life. Well, they, they want to twist that they and bend dis- that and break that. They want to distort all of that. You know, they want to create the perception that something that is completely impossible could be possible, that a man could get pregnant. I mean, it's not possible. Uh, but they want to turn people into science fiction projects. That's what they want to do. You know, they don't, um, they don't want to 
you know, take life as it real as it really is. And, you know, you think of when we were growing up, do you think you would ever have heard a conversation about a man getting pregnant? I remember they made it. There was a movie. I don't think it did all that well called Rabbit Test with the com- the comedian Billy Crystal playing the first pregnant man. And that probably was about. 40 years ago and it, you know at the time it was kind of like a joke having a man get pregnant etc but now it's it's when i think back on it it's a little frightening it's not funny because you know this is the narrative that's coming from the extreme left is they they, they they're now talking about people who can get pregnant yeah they're the only people who can get pregnant are women now yeah that's a fact men cannot get pregnant Men can raise children, men can be fathers, men can be caretakers, the but they that, cannot get pregnant. The fact that we had to take 10 seconds to say that on the, on a mic. It shows the extent to which the world it's has insane. lost its mind. They have lost their mind that we're even having these conversations. So there's this meme here. Uh, I got into a, <laughs> I was posting a lot of memes yesterday. They were funny memes. So you've heard of the Titanic, and you you remember the Titanic movie. Yes, of course. I get posts related to Rose and Jack's 1-800-CONTACTS was sending me a post (laughs) trying to get me to buy contact lenses talking about Rose and Jack yesterday. Since I happen to know people named Rose and Jack, I first got a little taken away, and then I realized (laughs) they're talking about the Titanic. (laughs) Oh, right, right. Yeah, those are the key names. Um, So... uh, uh, Zane, remember the Zane character? He yeah. was he was the fiance, the fiance to Rose. Of, of Rose, right? Yeah. And um, so he was this cowardly guy, yeah, uh, a, a aristocrat, a, right, a w- right. well-to-do person. And he's trying to like he's taking a kid and he wants to get on one of the right, boats, right? right? And they said, "Sorry, sir, women or and children first. And then. In 2022, if the Titanic sank, I'm trans. Yeah. And he would get on. He would get on, exactly. Well, if you saw the meme, it was, it's yeah. funnier. It's funnier when you see it. So here's Joe Biden saying uh, his staff gave him a list. He's in front mm-hmm. of the, uh, he, he's at a joint conference with the yeah. leader of Israel. Let's take a listen. No, the, the question was for the president. And Mr. President, do you want to call on the next question? Um, sure. Uh, I, I was you you given a list here. I, uh, Steve Holland of Reuters. That's that's pathetic. I, I no. saw this. this yeah. The question was for the president. And Mr. President, do you want to call on the next question? Um, sure. Uh, I, I was you give a list here. I, uh, Steve Holland of Reuters. <laughs> I'm giving a list. Yeah. Well, he, and then he, there's another video where he's like, well, so tell me, where do I go? Yeah. Next? Yeah. No, the, all of these have been happening within the last week and people are putting them together. They're making lists and lists of Biden's gaffes and it's just getting worse and worse, which, you know, and then you add I mean, that to the, he to doesn't the approval seem to have. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. that to the approval rating. Somebody, um, somebody I was talking to yesterday made a comment. Now it wasn't a practical comment, but they said, you know, technically Jimmy Carter is still eligible to run for president. I mean, obviously he's way too old. Ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, he's way too old. But but the funny, but the funny thing about it is, is you look at what 
we see every day with Biden, this is much worse than people could ever have imagined. Well, there is an age limit for being a president. There is. You have to be 35 years old. That there, there's a no, there's a minimum age. Minimum age, thirty-five. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. So I don't think there's an upper age require upper that's age right. cut off, and there should be. There should be. Yeah, I mean, I know. Actually, you know, some of the smartest people I know, than you know, uh, your niece and nephew are some of the smartest people that we know, and they're you know. Not they're not over thirty, or they're just about thirty, right? Thirty or less. So, so all I'm saying is there are a lot of smart people out there that are they're thirty years old. I remember, you know, some of my prime years of business were when I was thirty, and um, I don't know. I'm just I saying that, that thirty-five year is a, is a good point because that but ninety-nine really, there should be a limit. No, no, you're not going to become president at ninety-nine. <laughs> I was joking, but when I, but when you think no, of, but there isn't there there is no requirement. You could be ninety-nine and get elected president. That's well, we'll my think, point. Well, think about how long certain people served in the Senate or in the House. I mean, like Robert Byrd and other people were in the House for years, or I mean, the Senate for years. I mean, you know, you're you're talking about people, nobody. You're not, and the Supreme Court justices. It's a lifetime appointment. So that's why you got to choose carefully because that person could be there for forty, maybe even you know more time. But uh, but Ron DeSantis is currently only in his forties and. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom is in his 50s. So two years from now, uh, Ron DeSantis is still going to be in his 40s. So, you know, you, 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 look, you look at that. Um, you want a, a president that has more energy. There was something about the fact that both uh, Barack Obama, uh, Bill Clinton, Kennedy, you know, in, in his short tenure were younger presidents. Yeah, and uh, well, and look at where it's gotten us, though, right now. Like, look at where... This leadership has gotten us, yeah, and it's disturbing. I mean, yeah. this thing, the things we witnessed this week, just this week alone, on Capitol Hill yeah. in the committee hearings, has been uh, just eye-opening. And they don't even hide it anymore. Um, and they've been lying and decept- deceptive this whole time. Yeah, you know. And now we're starting to see some truths come out. Um, one of the big issues. Uh, that I wanted to talk about today was the the climate. Uh, NASA has come out with a uh, whistleblower, mm-hmm. and NASA came out and was basically saying that uh, they've known for sixty years about climate, mm-hmm. and this has been um, a bit of a, a ruse. But there's this thing called climate um, climate. Uh, uh, chips or something yeah. like that, e- equity, yeah. that you could sell climate credits. Yeah. And that's what it was. Right. And uh, this, uh, one of my favorite uh, an- anal- analysts is Sorel Amor. And uh, I wanted to you take a listen to this. This is a really great piece on the origins of your carbon footprint. So let's take, take a listen. Do you know that you are the most dangerous thing on earth? Well, according to some people, you are. 
because you create carbon. Our obsession with carbon is everywhere. We're reminded constantly about our individual carbon footprints and what companies are doing to reduce their own. People are always talking about reducing their carbon footprint. We get sold offsets when we fly and love buying from net zero companies and get guilt trips into planting trees or taking fewer trips if we put out too much carbon. Even Prince Charles has said he doesn't like using his helicopter anymore, saying it's not a good look when it comes to carbon. But what if this was all a lie? What if this carbon mania was created by the world's most powerful companies to help them make a lot more money? Well, unfortunately, when it comes to carbon, these what ifs are more truth than fiction. In reality, this carbon footprint thing is mostly total And of course, like everything else I talk about on this channel, it was mostly created out of the desire to make a lot more money. So to tell a story, I'm going to take you on a dirty journey around the world, starting with the phrase carbon footprint. So how was this phrase created? (laughs) You might be thinking that it's an environmental group that came up with it, or maybe a group of hippies, someone that really cared about the planet, someone that is so passionate about our environment. Well, actually, no. (laughs) And I guarantee you would never guess who actually came up with this phrase. carbon footprint was created by these guys, British Petroleum, otherwise known as BP. The same BP that's the fifth largest producer of oil and gas products on the planet. And the very same company responsible for creating this, the second largest oil spill in history. BP created the term carbon footprint in 2004 as part of a massive global advertising campaign, which they spent millions of dollars on to educate the public about their new fancy term. And also to make sure we know how much we're individually doing to damage our planet. Now you might be thinking, hmm, why is an oil company trying to get people to think about carbon when it is the oil companies that are responsible for creating a product that is putting out the carbon into the atmosphere? Well, there's a very good reason for that, and it's because BP didn't want to take the fall for it. In the early 2000s, oil companies could see the writing on the wall. The environmental movement was growing, and more pressure was being put on organizations to do the right thing for our planet. And considering oil companies are responsible for producing the product most responsible for damaging the earth, they knew they'd be the biggest targets for people's anger. So in a genius move of PR and marketing, BP decided to strike first. After creating the term carbon footprint, they were the first in the world to create a calculator that individuals could use to figure out their own carbon output. After that, they spent millions on a new advertising campaign, boasting how they were the first oil company to take steps towards addressing climate change. All of this making them seem like the good guys and laying the blame on individual people as the real source of carbon. In short, They wanted to make you believe that the problem of carbon is all your fault. And if the planet is suffering, you should not be pointing the finger at them. You should instead look in the mirror and lay blame on your polluting, disgusting self instead. And while you were doing that, thankfully BP was taking drastic action in order to reduce the amount of carbon that they were putting out themselves. Actually, no, they weren't doing any of that at all. Instead, they hired advertising agency Ogilvy and Mather to ramp up their positive climate messaging. They paid the firm $250 million dollars to heavily promote the image that BP was a positive force fighting climate change. Ogilvy created the Helios campaign, which heavily focused on environmental messaging and promoted BP's investments in greener sources of energy. But behind the scenes, BP wasn't practicing what it was preaching. They continued to ramp up their exploration efforts, investing more to ensure that oil and gas production would continue to grow each year. And while yes, they did invest some money into new green energy products, but it was only a tiny fraction of what they invested
invested into fossil fuels. And they actually spent more money advertising their green energy products to the public than they actually spent on creating green energy. In short, it was all a lot of public relations and not a lot of action. But unfortunately, this is not where the story ends. BP has been very vocal about implementing carbon taxes to hit polluters where it hurts, spending millions to give the appearance they want positive change, even taking out full-page newspaper ads calling to protect our environment. However, they've spent even more money making sure a carbon tax doesn't happen. In 2018, they spent $13 million lobbying against a carbon tax in just one US state. In 2019, BP spent more money lobbying against climate action than any other publicly owned company on Earth, investing $53 million to block or delay the creation of new laws that would have a positive impact on our planet. And in 2020, BP spent millions promising the public that they would significantly cut their fossil fuel output by 2030, while at the same time continuing to fund anti-climate lobby groups in nations like the United States and Australia. So basically, BP tried to blame you for the carbon problem first, and then they brainwashed you with environmental messages so that they could conduct their dirty business as usual behind the scenes. As I've said many times on this channel before, to me, actions speak a lot louder than words. And in my opinion, BP's actions paint a very different picture to what they want you to believe about them. But what do you think? Let me know down below. Now, if actually the ones responsible for creating a brand new industry that is helping them and many other people close to them become very, very rich. To help tackle the problem of carbon, carbon offsets were created. The global carbon offset market already brings in billions from well-meaning people who want to reduce their own carbon footprint. Right now, it's estimated that the market for carbon offsets is worth more than $250 billion per year and is growing at a phenomenal rate. Selling carbon offsets and carbon credits is already a highly profitable business. Just like stocks, carbon credits are traded as commodities that are bought and sold by investors for profit. In fact, one investment firm suggests that very soon trading carbon could become the biggest market on the planet, estimating that it has the potential to grow to become 10 times larger than the entire global oil industry. In Europe, the biggest polluters in the region are already making up to 50 billion euros a year through carbon credit schemes. People are already taking advantage of the world's obsession with carbon, scamming governments who have carbon offset policies. In France, the fraud of the century saw a group swindle billions of euros from the EU's carbon trading scheme. And BP? Well, as you might expect, trading carbon has become a major part of its focus, making up to 10% of its yearly trading activities and adding up to 100 million per year to its bottom line. Now, I'm not suggesting that carbon isn't an issue for our planet, but I am trying to put into perspective that whenever there is a ludicrous amount of money to be made in anything, companies almost always do what they do best, and that is to direct the narrative to helping them make as much money as they possibly can. I illustrated a perfect example of this when I made a video a few weeks ago about the plastic industry, which is linked down below. Now, is there anything actually we can do about this whole carbon thing? Well, unfortunately, this isn't actually so clear. Although oil companies want you to believe that you're the reason we have a carbon problem, in reality, most of your carbon choices are out of your hands. In most nations, over 50% of all carbon is responsible 
responsibility of decisions made by your government, things like public and military spending. And while most people would be happy to get the governments to make positive change in these areas, it's basically impossible because they're fighting against oil companies who are collectively spending billions to ensure new environmental laws never get written or passed. In reality, oil has helped advance humanity to the point we're at today. But like all technology we've outgrown, maybe it's time for us to move on to something better. Unfortunately for us, the world's oil companies are standing in the way of this progress and manipulating the market to line their own pockets for as long as they possibly can. As you can see, it's all pretty gross. Now, I'm not saying that we as individuals shouldn't be doing better and we shouldn't be taking care of the planet. Of course we should be. Say that you're in a position where you can use less oil, or you can use less plastic, or you can make less damage to the environment. Do that. And I know in your heart of hearts, this is what you want to do. But do not let a oil company guilt trip you into yeah. believing. Well, that's it. And uh, here, here is one of their one of their ads, right here. What size is your carbon footprint? Uh, this uh, is the BP. Footprints there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number. How much carbon I produce? Is that it? You mean the effect that my living has on the earth in terms of the products I consume? So that's uh, BP's ad, mm -hmm. and they spent millions and hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of dollars on ads like that through the last 15 years. And, you know, but where it gets very uh, concerning and deadly is when you start to listen to people like this talking about the world's population and also what that means to climate. So let's take a listen to this globalist from England. Uh, Stanley Johnson interview. This was in 2012. It was sent to me. Um, and uh, father of the recently resigned British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaks. So this is the uh, Stanley Johnson, the father of Boris Johnson, speaks his views on population control and wants to reduce Britain's population to around 10 or 15 million by 2025. Let's take a listen to get population under control as well, because if you look at it in sheer economic terms, how can you sustain increases in per capita income at a time when you have rising population without rising economic growth? Whereas if you have a declining um, population, which is what I would aim for, then of course even a stable economic growth situation will give you increases in per capita income. So that's where I stand on do, that. Do you, do you have a sense of what the carrying capacity of Britain is or of the... Uh, uh, of the world as a whole? Or? Well, Britain, I'd put it at 10 or 15 million. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I think that'd be absolutely fine. I mean, that would do us really splendidly. At, at, at a limit, 2025, I think it's complete nonsense that we are now confronted with an islander, would you believe it, of 70 million, 70 million people. I wrote a paper, I think it's the only paper the Conservative Party has ever published, and it was published as an old Queen Street paper in, in June mm. 1972, oddly enough. And it was called uh, Britain Needs a Population Policy. And, um, and you, you could still argue that today, I mean, right now. I certainly could. I certainly could. But what has happened, of course, is that we have all been, as it were, shunted aside, off, shunted off. So, and then you juxtapose that one with this. This is, so uh, ju just, this is just this year um, at the uh, Davos World Economic Forum. This guy named Sad, Sad Guru. Uh, he's from India. 
So in the session we just attended here at the Economic Forum, I think there was a sense of relief, actually, in your frankness. Um, you brought up some issues that, that others are reluctant That's my to trouble. bring up. <laughs> Always. <laughs> All the religious groups are against me because I'm talking about population. They want more souls, I want less on the planet. <laughs> That's uh, funny, isn't it? That's real funny. Yeah, how, real how do you funny. propose ha, to do ha, that? Ha. And then Bill Gates has this scheme where it's like good health care and good health systems can actually reduce the population. He, he has these charts of how that's so. And it just defies gravity. You know, you can make a chart, you can have a chart with uh, a red line going up and a, a blue line going down like he did. But it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. Um, you know, so it's, you know, and, and what, what I worry about is, is that, uh, you know, they've often talked about cow flatulence. I heard somebody also talk about machines. Oh, the same guy, this uh, sad guru, another mm-hmm. interview. He was talking about machines don't have flatulence. Uh, so, um, but, you know, I was uh, floored with the idea that, um, uh, you know, they, they're trying to tie population in with climate, yeah. global warming. Yeah. And yet there's, a, there's an article um, that says NASA admits climate change occurs because of changes in Earth's solar orbit, not because of SUVs and fossil fuels. So for more than 60 years, the NASA has known that the changes occurring to planetary weather, this was put out by Ned, Ned Ryan, uh, mm-hmm. shared this. This was from 2019, this article, over at SOT.net, S-O-T-T dot net. Um, for, so for more than 60 years, NASA has known about uh, that the changes occurring to planetary weather uh, patterns are completely natural and normal. But the space agency, for whatever reason, has chosen to let the man-made global warming hoax persist and spread to the detriment of human freedom. And now we probably know why. They're selling carbon footprint credits. Mm-hmm. They're making uh, lots of new money with their cronies, in the, uh, with their monopolies in the green initiatives. And uh, a whole host of other things. There's, there's a lot of ways to create new industries and new markets to make a lot of money for the globalists, who will then control your whereabouts and everything else that you do in in, in life. Wh- whether you could put a pool in your backyard, or whether you know a puddle becomes a pond, or you know we've heard these stories. Um, of government regulation and climate, they're 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 coming up with a green new green credit sc- score system uh, to combine it with a social credit score to control what you say, what you do, how you behave, what you eat. In fact, <clears throat> you know how fancy some of these appliances are in your kitchen. Yeah. They're Bluetooth. You could turn them on and off. You, they're Wi-Fi. You know, I have uh, uh, an air fryer that I could literally, you know, 
turn on from anywhere in the world. So you, so you, so you, so you could be halfway around the world cooking something in your home. Well, <laughs> why someone one would do? Well, if why someone would do that, I don't. It know. It is about the dumbest idea that I, you know, why would you ever have an air fryer where you could remotely turn it on and off? I mean, that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. to me because well, the only, who's going to put the food in the air fryer? Well, no, the only, the only reason why I think that could be good is if you left an electric uh, device on and you could remotely turn it off. You know how people always have these fears that they're going to leave their homes and leave something on? Like if you, if you find yeah. it, oh, I left this on, and you know you can turn it off from anywhere, that's a good thing. I mean, That's the power of positive thinking. Th- that, that, to me, that's po- progress. But some of this other stuff is just kind of useless. Well, people like Gavin Newsom, though, I would put it past him because he's controlling like every, you know, that whole thing about come to California for freedom. You know, he had an ad out. Well, we're, was, we're going. We'll find out if there's any yeah. freedom. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. So, uh, you know, and that was laughable. It was absolutely laughable because it's like California is controlling everything. But I would not be surprised if, you know, these things that you can control can also, you know, be prevented from turning on. Like they're saying, basically, you you can't to, to conserve water, for example. You can you can't run your run certain things like your lawn. You you can't you you can't run your um, washer and dryer or your dishwasher during the day when it's super hot. Mm-hmm. So during a certain period of time when everybody's running their air conditioning mm-hmm. units, right, to stay cool. They are li- going to limit the you know, appliances, whether it's a washer machine or a, a dryer or, uh, you know, do your laundry. Uh, any of one of these machines, they might even turn your refrigerator down and make it not so cold or whatever, you know, whatever they want to do. Um, but I was reading an article about that and I was like, I wouldn't put it past them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once they gain control of every aspect of your life, and they, they take your guns away, how are you ever going to fight yeah. back? How are you ever going to complain? How are you ever going to protest? So the article continues here, but NASA has thus far failed to set the record straight and has instead chosen to sit silently back uh, and watch as liberals freak out over the world supposedly ending in 12 years. So why do you think NASA is doing that? I mean, it's just... You know. I don't know. In the year 2000, NASA did publish information on its uh, Earth Observatory website about the Milankovitch climate theory, revealing that the planet is, in fact, changing due to extraneous factors that have, that have absolutely nothing to do with human activity. But again, this information has yet to go mainstream some 19 mm-hmm. years later which is why deranged climate uh, climate obsessed <laughs> uh, which is just got an interruption there climate obsessed leftists uh, have now begun to claim that we really only have 18 months left before the planet dies you know of course Ocasio-Cortez is famous for that she's got the Green New Deal she wants to control people 
you know, what are your thoughts on on all of this? Well, first, I still can't get over why the fact the, that she's the, the U.S. People? that she's that she's actually a U.S. Congresswoman. I mean, it, it, this blows my mind. But yeah, I mean, her her thinking is so naive, and uh, and then you, you couple that with she's got this very naive uh, naive way of speaking of communicating. And unfortunately, she's got a ton of followers and a ton of influence, which is frightening. And I think that's a little dangerous for our country that we've that we've got people out there that don't know what they're doing that have power. And that's that's not a good thing. So, I mean, you know, she I mean, she's laughable. People like talk. People like talking about her because she's physically attractive. She's got this uh acronym for her name and uh, so so it's easy to talk about her but she's come to represent something and i think what she's come to represent is probably bigger than what she actually is she's become like the squad leader and i you know and i think she's become the symbol of this progressive movement which i think is bigger um than her own personal uh, accomplishments it's just that that some she became just through happenstance the face of it so I wanted to share uh, with our audience some things that you're working on. Yes. And uh, so you've been um, writing up a storm. You've, you're doing a lot of writing right. over at the American Spectator. Right, where I also run events and do a bunch of other things. Yes. But um, the um, article that I published most recently is a book review of former press secretary Ari Fleischer's and, and, and the name of the the book is Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care. And my article, which is on spectator.org, you have to go to the authors because it was there. It was on the main page a few days ago. But right now, you have to go to the authors by alphabetical, by first name. So <coughs> go to L, go to Leonora, and you will find my article. The title of my article is Liberals Support Diversity Everywhere Except the Newsroom. Can Journalism Be Saved? And the ba- and the you know the basic uh, summary of the article is that the reason why the newsrooms are so biased towards college educated democrats is because that's where the the journalism schools are that's the, how they feed them they put they they're the people that are making up the journalism schools particularly the most elite journalism schools are, are all democrats and and that's at this point embedded in the recruitment process and then these are the people that get placed in the most influential news outlets and we just continue this cycle of homogeneity and uh, and so you've got this happening um, all over the place. And what Ari Fleischer is trying to say is, you know, and this is and this is what, uh, what has caused all this bias. And so I do a review of the book, and you know, we talk about you know the situation historically and at present, and some solutions are posed. But the biggest solution is everything's got to be revamped. We got to be more um, diverse, and I find it ironic that the democrats and especially the most progressive liberals always talk about diversity but they never want to implement diversity of political thought or political orientation they may occasionally have a token conservative on a panel but it's always in a very small token as i just said role so that i so i've got that piece that's up and then i am actually working on something that i've been you know i before you go on to that i I never understood though why journalism you know like like anything like even medicine i think that the the medical fields yeah are also behaving this way they they cover every uh other doctor's backs 
Uh, they they're very protective of their colleagues. Yeah, and it's it's like a like a fraternity or some sort of a secret society kind of deal, um, <clears throat> and. It's it's very strange, you know. It's very academic. It's very, um, but it, it's also led us to, you know, like with journalism, you know, everybody's writing the same thing. And if you if if you're an exception to that, you're um, a pariah. You know, you're you're excluded. You're blacklisted. You don't yeah. get picked, called by the president or whatever. You don't get a front row seat. You know, you have to play by their rules if you want access. And um, and the same thing is true, I think, with, you know, like COVID and and uh, med- med- the medical profession, the CDC, trust the science. And I think one of the things we have to do is we have to get away from these scientists and these journalists, you know, and, you know, basically allowing their political views, A, bringing politics into it. Yeah. You know, you could be a, a journalist covering politics, but leave your political views at home. Well, and right? that's exactly what the the other pro- problem is. And I bring this up in the article but, 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 is that you have a situation where we've gotten away from factual reporting. We now have this activism where people yeah. are focused on they've got an agenda. It's no longer just the facts, folks. Right. It's it's now become we I got to push this agenda. I got to move the needle. Something's got to happen as a result of my writing this or doing this broadcast. And the, the reason why I think it's related to our universities like that professor the law professor that basically said that men can have babies that's insane you of just heard DeSantis say today on our show you know um but uh, and medicine cdc was wrong just about as much they were as wrong as you could possibly be wrong okay about everything and and there was very few and consequences we for were being forced wrong. to li- yeah zero consequences and we had to listen to them and on this show, we have been complaining and complaining and complaining about all of this. And we don't even get, like, we get banned and censored and punished for trying to speak any level of truth. And Facebook is just, you know, like, impossible to even speak truth on there. Um, the truth be damned. And... uh and I think it's the same case with the journalism. And, and you know, it kind of woke me up when we were covering the journalism, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, circular reporting that was going on with the Russian hoax. Right. I think that's when it became really bad. And Trump basically put a, you know, he shined a light on all of that because he, he threw political correctness. He threw political correctness out the window. I mean, I'm looking at a story here that I was thinking about covering today. It's over on the Federalist, and it says why a federal judge shouldn't toss the case enabling Stefan Halper to pretend Russia collusion was real. You know, Federalist is Margot Cleveland's written wrote that, but you know she's still saying, "Don't forget about this. Don't sweep this under the rug. Well, Somebody needs to be held accountable for all of this stuff." That's the problem. You you hit the nail on the head, Scott. It's not just that they're they're putting out information that's inaccurate, and they do walk it back, but they walk it back in a way that is so silent. Uh, they do it very quietly, and at that point, the, the the world and the media are focused on something else. So the walk back has no significance. 
And that's the big issue. So that's where there are no consequences. You can spread it all over the place, your falsehood, and everybody starts believing it and acting um, because of it. And then when you when the when it's revealed that it's not true, and there's so many examples of this, the Hunter uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, the Russian collusion narrative. I mean, you can go uh, everything about COVID. You can go on and on with this. But then when other facts that defied that original fabricated narrative come out, they're presented in uh, you know somewhere behind the scenes when nobody's paying attention. It's like okay, I did what I had to do. I turned in my homework, but <laughs> you know, it, but it did, but it didn't matter. I did, I did it um, when everybody else's uh, was out at the ball game. It, it was over. So, what's the name of the book, and what's the name of the article that you wrote about, about Ari Fleischer? Yeah. Okay, I'll just repeat it. It's called uh, "Suppression, <clears throat> Deception, Snobbery, and Bias: Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care," which I think is a great title. The name of my article is "Liberals Support Diversity Everywhere Except the Newsroom." Can journalism be saved? Hmm. Now you're working on something exciting yeah, and new. I, I'm actually working on something which is actually more old than new. Hasn't even been published. It yet. hasn't been published yet. I'm working on it'll be out probably soon. It's a it's a review of a book about Dickens and uh, Charles Dickens and the name and the name of the book is The Turning Point 1851 the year that changed Charles Dickens and the world and it's written by a writer a, a, a British writer called Robert uh, Douglas Fairhurst it was published in the UK last year it came out here this year so when, when you say Charles Dickens I right away think of a Christmas Carol right and, and that's one of his most <laughs> famous works but he he published many things um Oliver Twist, um, uh, Bleak House, uh, David Copperfield, Hard Times, A Tale of Two Cities, A Great Expectation. I mean, there are so many famous, quote, great expectations. There are so many famous quotes from Dickens that you probably hear all the time and that you you don't even think about uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Give us us one. yeah, I'm not going to do that now, but I can. (laughs) But uh, but what I was going to say is, but, you know... um, but, but in terms of what this book is about, is it, it essentially talks about um, how Dickens uh, – okay, here, I've got, a, I've got a quote. I found one quickly. And this is from uh, the tale, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Okay. People say it all the time. Yeah. And there, there's, ton, there's tons of things like that. So at any event, what I was going to say is the premise of this book is that this year was pivotal in not only Dickens' professional and personal life, it was pivotal in terms of the world. And there was this um, great exhibition that took place in L- London's Hyde Park. My thesis, which I think hasn't been discussed yet, is that this exhibition, was, this uh, international exhibition was important. But it was important in some ways that are not articulated. I see this exhibition as the precursor to globalism. And, and uh, Dickens objected to the excessiveness of, the, of this exhibition because he thought of all the want. He, all of his books talk about poverty and want. And, yeah, you know, when you, you see all of this abject poverty... Why why are all these people spending lavishly and building these structures when we've got people that can't eat? And and then you take that a little further and you get into the idea of this whole international kumbaya moment. Well, we don't have the place to take in these people from other places because we got to feed our own. Well, guess what? That that idea was out there in Charles Dickens' time. It's not, you know, the the open borders thing is a scary thing. It's not a new thing. Wow. 
Yeah. So 1851 was the birth of globalism. Well, in, it, that's the thesis I'm getting out of it, but um, that's just my theory. So you'll, you'll hear more about it. That's quite interesting. Um, well, you know, that brings us to the end of the show. What a good, fine time to uh, lead, lead off the end of our show with that. Um, so I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I hope everybody had a great week and a great weekend. Um, and uh, I wanted to direct people over to magapack.org and buglecall.org uh, to find out what we're doing to advance America First policies to make America great again. Also, if you go over to mypillow.com, be sure to use Red State as your promo code. And with that, my name is Scott Adams. My name is Lee Narcoretta. And we'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm from a small town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in D.C., but close enough now to see this mess. Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper. They grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.